God, what does that mean for us and to us? Where does the Christian stand in relationship to the law? We're going to be uh, doing a series through the book of uh, Romans. Um, and just in uh, preparation for that, because Romans deals so much with the law and, and having the background of the law, I'm going to be doing a few messages leading up to it on on the law, just to kind of give us some background and an understanding of it. Um, just to give you an idea, if you go to Romans 6, 14 and 15, This is a, the kind of thing we encounter in the book of Romans concerning the law, both a, a great statement and a great question. That is, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. But then Paul anticipates a question that that might lead to, well, if we're not under law, but we're under grace, question in verse 15 is, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. So we need to understand what the law is, how it works. Um, and we're, we'll be um, uh, looking at that over the next few weeks. Galatians 6.2 says, uh, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So what does that mean? How does that relate to the law and the Christian? Well, God's law might be divided into three main divisions, three parts, and this is in your, your bulletin. Um, generally, the three divisions are these. We have the commandments, and that's when a lot of people talk about the law and they think about uh, the Ten Commandments, that's really what they're thinking of. It's more than that, but that's the beginning point. The the law, uh, meaning the commandments, is the moral will of God. This is the express will of God for here, here's how you'll conduct yourself towards me and towards one another. That's found, for instance, in Exodus chapter 20. That's the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. So we have the commandments, then we have the judgments. The judgments is, uh, is the civil law. And this has to do with the social and civil life of Israel, how they were to interact with one another, handle disputes, conduct themselves, and so forth. The, the judgments concerning the civil law you find in Exodus 21 through 24. And then the ordinances, or the ceremonial law, has to do with the religious life of Israel in Exodus 25 through 31. So those are the three main groupings or kinds of law the commandments the judgments the ordinances the moral law the civil law the ceremonial law so the law is not just the ten commandments but the commandments the judgments and the ordinances all together they're considered really a unit according to james to break any one part is to break the whole thing and he has this in in the background, he's not just talking about if you break one of the Ten Commandments, you break all ten. But if you break any part of the law, you break the whole thing. So, uh, it's, it's a unit. You'll be glad to know that we are not going to examine the details of all 613 laws. 
as given in the Old Testament. Um, instead, what we're going to do is, uh, is a topical series for the next uh, four weeks. Today, we're going to look at the giving of the law. And then we'll look at the purpose of the law. And then the demands of the law. And then the fulfillment of the law. Those four topics is how we'll break it down. So today, the, the giving of the law. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to be looking at a number of verses in the Old and New Testaments. And uh, a lot of these I had Renee print on the back of your insert. If that is easier for you or um, you, you lose your place or something, that they're also back there. Um, but let's start with chapter 4, 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver, one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? In a similar way, Isaiah 33, 22 says... The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Isaiah 33, 22. So the first thing we want to note is that the law was given by God. Now that may not be a news flash to you. Um, my guess is that most of you knew that before you came in this morning, right? Yeah, the law was given by God. But we need to begin there just to... Uh, Make sure we have the, the right foundation, not just take things for granted. The law was given by God. It's not enough just to know that, but to understand something of the significance of this. We are talking about God's law when we talk about law. This is God's law and not merely man's law. Man's law is often corrupted, but God's law is truth it is infallible, inerrant. God's law is perfect. In fact, just listen to a little bit of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. God is the lawgiver. His law unlike man's law, is never corrupted. It is truth. It is perfect. Man's law can be altered at the whim of man. And man often does change laws, and in fact, sometimes needs to because there are problems in it. But God's law um, is, is not altered by man. No, no man can come back and change what God has written. 
and God has said. Uh, breaking man's law has temporary significance. Sometimes it can be severe, but it is temporary related to this life only. But breaking God's law has eternal significance. Man's law is open for debate, especially in a democracy, but God's law is never open for debate. It is settled. It is possible to keep all of man's law, but no man can keep all of God's law. Only Jesus could do that. So the law was given by God. Second thing to keep in mind is that the law existed before Moses. Now, very often we, we think of the law in relationship to Moses. Um, and we're going to talk about that. There's good reason for that in a moment. But it is really good to keep in mind that the law existed even before Moses' time. Adam lived under law. Uh, we know of at least one when he was in the garden. He could eat of every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of Good and what? Good and evil. Now, it's interesting when you read through Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation story that at the end of each day, uh, God said, saw the things that he had made and God said, it is good. At the end of every day, it is good, it is good. And he showed Adam all these things he had made which were good. Adam knew what was good. What did Adam not know? What was evil. And so when he disobeyed, he gained the knowledge of good and evil. Really what was added to his life was, was evil. We'll come back to that idea later. But Adam lived under at least that one command. And then, of course, when they were expelled from the garden, there were more commands. Uh, evidently, the kind of offering they were to give and so forth. Um, and Romans chapter 5 has very much to say. We'll, we'll get to that in our study um, January or so looking at Romans 5 uh, and the one Adam uh, Noah was expected to obey, to obey the law uh, Noah in uh, Genesis chapter 9 um, God is he's coming off the ark and, and God uh, tells him establishes a law and a promise uh, um, and one of the things that God tells Noah is actually the foundation for capital punishment if any man takes another man's life by man his life shall be taken and establish the rule for capital punishment um, God put his promise of the rainbow in the sky as a part of the covenant with man at that time Abraham received and obeyed God's commandments and Abraham Romans 4 points out was way before Moses time but let's go to Genesis chapter 26 Genesis 26, and we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. This is actually talking to 
um, Isaac, but it refers back to Abraham. And God is saying, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham uh, obeyed God's commandments. There were laws in the time of Abraham, not the Mosaic law. That came much later, but there were laws. But now with this in mind, that uh, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, and so forth, uh, look now at Genesis 15, verse 6. So we're going way backwards in time. The reason I want to point this out is that Romans chapter 4 uh, makes a great case of being justified by faith alone using Abraham as the model because Abraham lived before the Mosaic law. He couldn't have been saved by keeping the Mosaic law. Even if he could have perfectly kept it, which no man could do, he lived before that time. I just want to point out that he still had laws, but that's not how he was justified before God. Way back to Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So, Abraham, by his faith, his, his belief in the Lord, God counted that to his account. He credited him with Righteousness. He gave him righteousness, declared him to be a righteous man. But that didn't mean that, Mo, that Abraham didn't have to obey God. It was both. You see, here's the idea that faith leads to righteousness and obedience leads to blessing. That's what Abraham found. And, and so we, we shouldn't too strictly... Uh, divorce faith and law it's not like because we are not under law but under grace we can do whatever we want but we find the same thing that Abraham did that by faith God gives us his righteousness we believe and he he puts his righteousness upon us but by obedience he puts his blessing upon us even as children of God we need to walk in obedience to, to have the blessing of God upon us uh, one of the significant things about thinking about it this way of the law existing even before Moses from the time of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and on is that there is a, a progress of revelation throughout scripture beginning from the garden all the way uh, up till the New Testament and being fulfilled in Christ there's a progressive revelation of the demands of God upon mankind and how God was going to answer the dilemma of man who could not keep God's commands. So we have, it's like uh, two tracks going at the same time, law and redemption. And those, those are non-intersecting lines. Law and redemption and the history of the law and the history of redemption unfolding in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. But where they meet is at Christ. Because he fulfills the law and becomes the redemption. 
And that's, the, that's where the law is leading us to, to, that, to see what Christ has actually done. Now, the law was given through Moses. Um, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you might think the law was given through uh, Charlton Heston. I think he actually lived a little bit before Moses. But, uh, and it, if you haven't read it for a while, Exodus 20 is a great chapter to read uh, just to refresh your mind of, of uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments and what it was like, and especially note when Moses comes down from the mountain what it was like. That's described for us also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about Moses' face was so bright that he had to cover a veil, cover his face with a veil because people couldn't stand to, to look on the reflected glory of God from Moses having just been in near proximity to God. And even then, Moses was not allowed to look directly at God. Um, but let's, in the New Testament, let's look at John chapter 7, verse 19. This comes from Jesus himself from John 7, 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The uh, main thing I just want to point out there is that Jesus is saying, did not Moses give you the law? So Moses gave the law. Okay, now go to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So it was quite a severe thing to reject the law of Moses. It, it, you were up for the death penalty on the witness of two or three people to reject the law of Moses. So again, law given through Moses. Verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? You see, the message of God's law was given by God through Moses to man. But the message of God's salvation was given by God through Jesus Christ to man. So if law carries the death penalty, if you reject it, of how much worse punishment, verse 29, talks about if you reject what God sent through Jesus Christ, and that is the message of the gospel of salvation. Rejecting the law through Moses is bad. Rejecting the offer of salvation through Christ is eternal. 
Fourth, the law was given through angels. Acts 7, 52 and 53. Now, I'm guessing you didn't see that part when you were watching the Ten Commandments, did you? That the law was given through angels. Shouldn't be too surprising to us, though, because actually the, the word for angel means messenger. Angels are, the, are messengers of the Lord. So we have a, just a couple of interesting passages to look at. Acts chapter 7, verse 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You have received the law by the, by the direction of or the working of, of angels and have not kept it. Galatians We'll come back to this verse on another day when we can spend more time on it. But today I just wanted to point out the connection with angels. Galatians 3.19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the, hands, uh, by the hand of a mediator. So the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So I might demonstrate that for a moment. If you, um, if you look at it like this, let's say this is the, God is giving his law to man, uh, and this is to be man, the recipient of the law. This is Moses. So God gives his law through Moses. Now, Moses is not a strainer. He doesn't do anything to alter the law. It's just, he's just the uh, funnel for it. He, he's the, um, the vessel for it. The law comes from God through Moses. So that's how we get the law, as, as we commonly understand it. But we also get the law through angels. And so we have, a guy had three hands. <coughs> through angels, through Moses, to us. So it's like that. God gives the law through angels, through Moses, to man. Not changed, they're just the mediators. And um, it's still God's law, but that's how it can be, that's how it can be called sometimes the law that God gave, the law that Moses gave, and the law that the angels gave. That's how it all works out the uh, the same. So it's not a different law, it's the different mediators of the law or vessels that are being used. So part of the law was directly given by God, we know, um, 
the, the finger of God, we're told, wrote the words on the tablets of stone for Moses. Uh, God seems to have been directly involved in part of it uh, with no mediation, and then the rest of it, there was uh, evidently given through angels. Now, significance of this, go to Hebrews chapter 2. It's a very similar kind of a point that we saw in um, earlier in Hebrews 10 that if the law, uh, if people rejected Moses' law, they, they would suffer death penalty. But how much worse punishment if they reject Christ? The same kind of argument's being made here in Hebrews 2, but about the law from, through angels. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, so if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, so that, that law, uh, they were involved in giving it, not altering it, it wasn't theirs, but they were um, transmitters of it and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward really meaning a, a penalty they got what they would do if you broke it verse 3 how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by and was confirmed to us by those who heard him to give the law, God used angels and men. To give the gospel of salvation, God himself came down. The king sent messengers to deliver his law, but the gospel was so important that the king left his throne of heaven, and he, he came to bring the message and to be the message of salvation. Therefore, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That is, there's no further word to come from God. There's no greater offer he's going to make, no other way out of our dilemma. God has spoken, and the final word is Jesus Christ. To reject him leaves you without any recourse. Finally, the law was given through conscience. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 12. <coughs> and again, because this is a passage we'll be getting to and... Um, just a while basically just going to read through it give you the idea Romans 2.12 for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law 
For not the hearers of the law are, are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, he's talking about now non-Jews, non-Israelites. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And so the point is that people even who do not, did not have the Old Testament were still guilty of breaking God's law. Uh, Romans 1 talks about that as well because uh, we, should, we should know things about God. But being made in the image of God means we have a moral character and a conscience and, uh, and part of that conscience is is the knowledge of good and, remember, the knowledge of good and evil. And that knowledge inside of us of good and evil is our conscience. And we know when we do things that are, are wrong. And you, you don't have to, um, you go anywhere in the world, any lost tribe anywhere, and they still have laws which regulate them. And murder is still murder, even if it's not written down in a law somewhere. People just know that. Because the work of the law has been written in our hearts and we have a conscience that, that accuses us or excuses us. And none of us have, have even kept that law, that the work of the law that's written in our heart and we all know that we are guilty. And then when we get to the law of God, it is confirmed for us by the law of God. Yes, we have indeed broken God's law. Uh, just notice verse 15 who show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience bear witness now our final passage if you go to Old Testament book of Jeremiah just after the book of Isaiah is the book of Jeremiah and we're going to look at uh, verses uh, 31 through 34 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant was that? The covenant I made with them when I led them out of the land of Egypt, and who was the principal guy leading them? Moses, right? So not according to the Mosaic, Mosaic law, not according to that law, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the new covenant, it's not an external law anymore, but it's what God writes on our heart. It's something internal. Um, 
it's, it's similar to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with people and enabled people, and Jesus told his uh, apostles, the Spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. And on the day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit, and from that time, believers at the moment of salvation are indwelt with the Holy Spirit inside them. So he's no longer just with them, but he's in them. It's similar to that with the law. The law is no longer something just external to us, some foreign code to us, but it is internalized. It is written on our hearts, and we are the first fruits of that as, uh, as participants in the new covenant. When Jesus instituted the last supper, new covenant, the same moment, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that I'm making with you. The covenant of salvation under, under grace. And we who are believers today are part of that new covenant. Therefore, the law is something external to us, the law of the Old Testament. But the working of God, the law of God is internal to us. Now, this is different from Romans 2. Because even unbelievers have the work of the law written in their heart. This is the law itself written in a heart. So there's a, there's a difference there. It's not just the, the work of the law, which makes our conscience guilty, but the law itself. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, they, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. These uh, two verses, uh, 33 and 34, are argued from effect to cause. That is, we should actually look at them in reverse for a moment to help us understand them. The fi final verse here, 34, where it uses the word for, is um, that word really means because. Uh, for this reason or because of this. So, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord because they shall all know me all of them from the least to the greatest because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more so those are two, the two foundation foundational reasons because God forgives sin we no longer have this law external to us but God working personally in our own hearts and because we know God personally for they shall all know me because they shall know me then we are his people we, we have this, a personal relationship with him and based on that personal relationship with him we have the law of God written in our hearts And yet we are still lawbreakers. Not a one of us here is without guilt. And so to bring about this new covenant, not spoken about here in this passage, but 
by Christ himself. He is making this great promise of which we are partakers because he knows he is going to sacrifice himself. The price of the covenant is the death of Christ. And all who believe in him have the guilt and sting, the burden of law removed from them. My hope and trust for you today is that you know what that's like. To have the guilt removed and the grace of God received. To have God himself, his spirit within you. A person who is in in that position is on unshakable ground. And though Satan will accuse us before the throne, night and day accusing the brethren, Revelation 12 says, we have a redeemer. We, we have um, an advocate at the right hand of God who pleads our case for us and nothing shall ever move us from there. Jeremy and the worship team will come back up to do a closing song. We are on a foundation which cannot be moved, and I hope and trust that that is true for you today, that you are in such a relationship with God. If, if you're not sure what you need to do to acknowledge beforehand that you have broken His law, His commandments, your own conscience pleads against you. But turn to him as Savior. Acknowledge your sin and receive his salvation. If you have already done that, then you know the truth of these words we're about to sing, that God is a mighty fortress in our life, and nothing is ever going to remove us from him, not even our arch enemy Satan. One word from our Savior will fell him. Let's stand together as we sing in closing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.